Well, there is a question that will keep you up at night. Is there more to this world than meets the eye? Is there more than we can see, the unseen, the supernatural, the unknown, the unexplainable? Um, some of you may say yes, some of you may say no. Some of you are really, really into the supernatural kind of stuff. So I want to do a little poll to start the morning off. If you're online, you're going to play, as lo- play along well. You're going to write it in the comments. If you're here in the room, I want to see a show of hands. How many of you, are, when it comes to supernatural TV shows, movies, any of it, you're like, oh, heck yeah, that's my thing, that's my jam. That's a decent amount of you. Yeah, there are, are many people who are just like, yes, I love it. I, I'm not so much a fan because I get scared really, really easily. The only time I like supernatural stuff is if there's humor along with it. And I'm like, good, I can laugh. I can laugh at the terror. It's like real life, okay? Like, I, like, but what we're into it, man, as, as people, especially like Americans, um, we are really into the supernatural stuff. A couple of numbers to get us started so, so you can kind of get an idea for this. Um, oh, my touchscreen's not going to work. Okay, I guess we'll do it this way. How about that? <laughs> so a study from Chapman University study, 17% of uh, people believe psychics can foresee the future. 35% of people believe aliens have visited in modern times. 41% believe that aliens have visited in the ancient past. Just so you know, as I'm going through these statistics, I'm like doing quick math and being like, ooh, that's a decent amount of you in here. Okay. Uh, 58% of people believe places can be haunted by spirits. Here's another study from a YouGov poll. Um, 46% of people believe in other supernatural beings. 45% of people believe in demons. 45% of people believe in ghosts. The last one is the one that really bothers me, okay? 13% of people say they believe in vampires, okay? So I don't know, I'm not, I can't do the math that quick, but if that's you after the service, we need to talk, okay? We do. Like, I am, I am concerned for you, all right? Hey, as people, though, seriously, we are, we're um, fascinated, we're obsessed. We, the, the supernatural is something that we're very, very much into. It's interesting that even people who wouldn't consider themselves to be, like, particularly, um, uh, like, religious or they wouldn't say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a part of a particular faith tradition. Like, I'm not a person of faith. I'm not a Christian. I'm not a uh, w- fill in the blank. But they would still say, yeah, I believe there's more to our world than meets the eye. Yeah, I'm not a person of faith. I don't believe, you know, that this, I don't, I don't go to church. I don't, whatever any of that looks like. But I believe there's more to our world than meets the eye. I think there's a supernatural reality underneath of things. And, and that's a crazy place to be. Let me, let me just kind of poke at that for a minute. If that's you, if you're here, you're watching, um, if you believe there's more to the world than meets the eye, I'm not trying to be judgmental. I just want to get you to think a little bit. If you say there's more to this world than meets the eye, there's a supernatural reality, but I'm not willing to press in and try to figure out what that is. What is that, right? Like, what, like I believe there's more that meets the eye, but I'm just going to kind of make it up as I go and live my life in just blissful ignorance. That's crazy. Like, that's crazy in my mind. Like, do, like be honest with yourself and say, I want to try to figure out what it is. We're going to try to do that a little bit um, in this series because there, there's something within us that as humans, we're like, ah, is there more? There's something unseen. There's something I can't observe with my, um, with my five senses. There's five senses, right? Smell, hear, touch, taste, see. I think I got them all. Um, There's a supernatural reality underneath the surface, and we want to ask the question, what is that? What is that? We're going to ask that question from a a Christian perspective, a biblical perspective. We are a church, after all, so if you're here and you're like, I'm not really a Christian, I still got questions, still figuring things out, that's awesome. We're glad you're here, we're glad you're watching, glad you're a part of this, Um, but we're going to try to to look at, okay, what does the Bible have to say? What What does the Christian faith offer to this conversation of, is there more to our world than meets the eye? Now, if you grew up um, in or around church, depending on the kind of church, uh, you may have some, some baggage that you're bringing into this with you. Uh, for, for many people, many, many modern Western kind of Christians, this would be, be my experience, um, is we don't talk about those kind of things at church. 
Like we say, what, what, what does the Bible have to say about that? And we'd say, nothing, nothing at all, okay? And whenever we bump up across like weird passages in scripture, we're just like, we just turn the page. Like, we're, get, let me get back to Jesus loves me, okay? I don't, I don't know what to do with these really, really weird verses. What do I do with that? You know, if you were to ask a lot of people, and this would have been myself included, um, up until the last couple of years, really, like, who, who are the major supernatural players in the biblical story? We'd say, well, there's God, like capital G-O-D, um, and as we're going to discover this morning, even our English word God kind of gets us into trouble because it's packed with so much meaning that isn't really actually there just in the word itself. But we'd say, okay, well, there, there's God, and that's really it. And it's just, the, the Bible's just a story about God and humans, and uh, yeah, I guess there's like a bad guy. There, we got to talk about like Satan or the devil or whatever. But that, like that's it. And then you're like, uh, yeah, but then there's like these weird angel and demon things. And again, I don't know what to do with that. So let me just flip the page. Like none of that's important. It's just like God is the only major supernatural player. There's no other. There's not other spirits. There's not other supernatural beings. There's not other spiritual beings. There's definitely no other gods like little g o d s's. And that's an okay view to have except for this pesky little thing called the Bible. Like, because when we have that view of, like, there's nothing else, and then we bump up against certain passages, and we're like, well, what am I supposed to do with that? And so we're going to look at that over the course of the next couple of weeks. Let me just say, well, we're just going to barely, barely begin to scratch the surface. Um, and so this is just kind of to get you thinking. If you'd like more, like, if you're, like, really into this, I can point you in the direction of some really good resources and stuff like that. Um, but this is just kind of going to be an introduction, especially today, to maybe change our thinking a little bit. And I want to look at a couple of passages of Scripture this morning. We're going to start in um, Psalm 82. I'm going to look at this whole psalm. It's only eight verses. Spend most of our time in the first verse, actually, to set us up for this series. So Psalm 82, starting in verse 1, we read that God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. God, big G, can we just call him Big G for the rest of the service? God, <laughs> let's not. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And you read that and you're like, okay, that's weird. What do you mean that God is in the midst of these other gods and there's like the divine council? What is that? A couple of terms we're going to talk about here. Divine council, sometimes we'll see that in different passages of scripture. Use some different terms like um, sons of God. Um, authorities, rulers, uh, hosts of heaven, the heavenly host, the starry host. There's a picture where God is surrounded by all of these other spiritual beings, the divine council. And how I kind of said at the beginning that sometimes our, our translation, our word God, doesn't quite do justice to what we're talking about because God really is like a category title. It's not really a name. And, and that's actually what we see in this, this passage. And so we have... God twice, one with a big G, one with a little G, but God here, the first word that's capital G-O-D, that is talking about the God, uh, like the most high God, the God of Israel in this, in this context, and gods that he's in the midst of is actually the same word. It's the exact same word, the Hebrew word Elohim. God and gods, same word. And, and the way we translate it is different because of, you know, like the, the way the grammar is and the sentence is structured and the verb tense and stuff that's actually way beyond my pay grade, but you know, that's what, that's what it is. But it's Elohim has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the Elohim, he holds judgment. So I said at the beginning, our word God just kind of falls short. We've got to ask more of like, okay, well, what exactly is being talked about here? This word Elohim is a category title, and it's used in a whole bunch of different ways um, throughout the, 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 the Bible and the Old Testament specifically because it's a Hebrew word. Um, so kind of uh, 
hold on because we're going to tear through a whole bunch of verses really, really quick to give some examples. So here we see the word Elohim can be used to refer to, uh, to the God of Israel and also the members of the divine council. Is it going to work? Yeah, it is. It also is, it can be used to refer to the gods of the nation. So 1 Kings 11.33, God speaking to the nation of Israel says, I will do this because they have forsaken me. They've worshipped Asherah, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Chemosh, the god of Elohim of the Moabites and Molech, the God of the Ammonites. They've not walked in obedience to me, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my decrees and laws as David, Solomon's father, did. So another way it can be used can be to refer to the gods of the various nations that were surrounding Israel at the time. Uh, how about this one? Deuteronomy 32, 17 says that they sacrifice, talking about the nation of Israel wandering in the desert, and they're, they're turning away from God, and they're sacrificing to demons that were no gods, there's Elohim, to gods that they had never known, Elohim, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers uh, never, had never dreaded. And so here the author is using, he's talking about these demons, whatever that is, and he's calling them Elohim as well. Now our, when we think demons, we kind of think like, like scary movies, and we think New Testament, we think possession, that's not this word demons here, this refers to something called the Shadim, that were like these uh, kind of malevolent, or yeah, malevolent spiritual uh, beings that were, they were located in certain geographic regions. Like they were very geographical. They were very territorial. Like in, in the, the, the ancient Near East, they had this idea that there were these spiritual beings that dwelled in certain geographic locations. So if you went to that geographic location, you might bump up against this particular spiritual being. And so that word shadim is also something that can be in Elohim. Uh, and then this one, <laughs> this one's really fun, okay? You, you need to read your Bibles, because there's some crazy stuff in there. Um, it can be, the word Elohim can be used to refer to the disembodied human dead. What would we call the disembodied human dead? It's not zombies. Zombies have bodies. You guys say you like the supernatural stuff, and you failed the test. Who said ghosts? I heard it. There you go. Yeah, we would say, well, that's a ghost. That's a disembodied, um, you know, human dead person, right? So... Listen, there, there's this time, this is a weird story, this is why the Bible is awesome. There's this time where, where King Saul, he's the first king of Israel, and uh, he starts off okay, but then he goes downhill really, really fast, and it gets to a point where he's no longer hearing from God, there's no revelation from God, no instruction from God, and Saul's like, what do I do? I need to hear from God, and the prophet that used to speak to Saul on behalf of God, his name was Samuel, but Samuel had died, and Saul's like, I need someone to tell me what God says, so he's like, I've got a brilliant idea. Saul, Saul says, I'm going to go to this person who is the witch of Endor. Yes, that's in the Bible. The witch of Endor. I know it sounds like it's out of Lord of the Rings, but it's not. It's in the Bible. So he wants to go to the witch of Endor so that she can call up the spirit of Samuel. So he can be like, hey, Samuel, what should I do? And that's what happens. So he goes, and this interaction happens. And the king, talking about Saul, said to her, do not be afraid. <laughs> okay. <laughs> do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. There's the word Elohim again. And, and the idea of being in the earth to the, to the ancient Israelites, um, they didn't think of like heaven and hell like we do. They just thought the realm of the dead. Everybody went to the realm of the dead. Good people, bad people, when you died, you went to the realm of the dead. You went to Sheol, as where all the dead were, and they thought of it as being in the earth. And so she's like, I see an Elohim coming up out of the realm of the dead. That's the ESV's translation. Um, the NIV actually kind of does a favor for us, and, and they put it into um, what we would actually think of as a disembodied human. The NIV translates it this way and says, the woman said, I see a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. 
And so this idea of Elohim can be used to refer to a lot of different things. It, it, it's not just like God, like we think three letters translated G-O-D. It's a category title. Maybe we'd be better off calling it spiritual beings. All kinds of things fit into this category of spiritual beings. And we just saw the God of Israel does, the divine council members do, the gods of the nations, the shadim of these areas, um, the disembodied human dead. When you come up against things in, in scripture, like the, the cherubim and the seraphim, and they're like, they've got all these heads and eyeballs, and they're flying, and you're like, what is that? They all fit in this category of spiritual beings. And so with that in mind, let's keep that in mind as we go through this passage, that God, Elohim, has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, Elohim, he holds judgment. Now the psalmist is going to kind of tell us what God's judgment against these other Elohim is. Uh, Whoop, wrong way. All right, I quit. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge or understanding. They walk around in darkness, and all the foundations of the earth are shaken. In verse 6, he says, I said, you are gods, Elohim. You are sons of the Most High. Now, sons of, fill in the blank, was like a Hebrew turn of phrase. where they would talk about lesser entities of the same category. So sons of the Most High, there's an example, um, there's these two big shot prophets in the Old Testament named Elijah and Elisha, and they would go around places, and there were all these other prophets that would kind of follow them around, and they were referred to as the sons of the prophets. They weren't actually Elijah and Elisha's sons, but they were lesser people, lesser entities, lesser prophets in this group of prophets. So it's this turn of phrase, you're sons of the Most High, you're Elohim, But you ain't like the Elohim. You're not like the Most High. But you are Elohim, all of you, and nevertheless, like men, you shall die. You're spiritual beings, but you're going to die like mortal men. You're going to fall like any prince. And then the psalmist kind of pulls out and, and, and puts a bow on the psalm and says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. Uh, the, the, the plea of the psalmist is, is, is ushering the day of the Lord, like when God comes back, because when he does is when these evil spiritual beings are going to be judged. He's going to come back and, and get, rid of, get rid of the wickedness, get rid of it. And so in this, in this psalm, we see that there are other spiritual beings. There are other Elohim. And Yahweh, who is the God of the Israelites, who is the most high, he is one of these Elohim. But here's the really important part. Yahweh is an Elohim, but none of the other Elohim are Yahweh. The way I think about it, and this, is, this obviously falls way, way short, um, but the way I think about it goes back to geometry. So who wants to go back to geometry class with me? You're like, oh gosh, no, please no. <laughs> Basic rule, you learn about the different rules of different shapes, okay? Who can give me the definition of a quadrilateral? Lots of mumbles, but I heard a four-sided shape. Yes, any four-sided shape can be a quadrilateral. It just has to have four sides. So a square is a quadrilateral because it's got four sides. But not all quadrilaterals are squares. Like, like to be a square, it needs something really, really specific. You've got to have 90-degree corners, and, you, and you've got to have equal sides. It's all got to be the same. That's the definition of a square. There's something unique. There's unique attributes about a square that make it a square. And in the same way, there, there are unique attributes about one particular Elohim that makes him different from all the other ones. And that's how the biblical authors talk about him. They use words and descriptions and phrases where they only talk about this one God in certain ways. 
In, in fact, they'll actually compare him to some of these other Elohim and be like, Psh. like they don't, they don't even come close. I want to run through a couple more verses real quick. So Psalm 86, 8, among the gods, there's none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. Psalm 89, the heavens praise your wonders, Lord, your faithfulness too in the assembly of the holy ones. There's our divine counsel again. For who in the skies, the divine counsel, who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the counsel of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He's more awesome than all who surround him. Who is like you, Lord Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you. The heavens praise your wonders. That's the verse I just read. I'm sorry about the touchscreen today. Um, Psalm 95, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving. Extol him with music and song, for the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods for you, Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted above all other gods. Exodus 15, who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working in wonders? Now, these statements come up over and over and over again, especially like, throughout the Old Testament. Here's the thing. These are, like, these are statements of praise and uh, like, like, God, you're so awesome. You're amazing. You're the best. There's none like you. But those don't make sense if there aren't any other spiritual beings. It'd be like, a God among all of the gods who aren't actually real. There's none like you. It's like, wait, what? Like, is that, is that, is that a compliment? I'm not really sure that it is. You are the great king above all the gods who are just a figment of our imagine, imagination. Like, it might, if, if that's the case, it might as well say, God among all the unicorns. There are none like you. Like, that doesn't make sense. This is why God even gives the, uh, the people the instructions of the nation of Israel. says, hey, don't have any other gods before me. When he, when he brings them out of slavery in the nation of Egypt and sets them up as a nation, and he says, you're going to be my people, I'm going to be your God, now don't have any other gods. These other nations around you, they're, they're going after other spiritual beings, don't you do that, because that, that, that option is there. He doesn't say, hey, these nations around you, they, they're, they're chasing after gods that don't actually exist, there's other spiritual beings, and so don't, don't, don't follow them, because I'm the only one who actually exists. He says, no, no, no. Don't get it wrong, you could choose to follow after a lot of different things, but I am your God, and I am above all these others. I am the most high, worship me alone. See, the claim for the biblical authors isn't that there was no other gods, or no other spiritual beings, because again, our English word God is like, eh, it's got very specific meaning that we want to attach to it. There are no other spiritual beings, that wasn't the claim. The claim for the biblical authors is, no, there definitely are other spiritual beings, but none of them are like Yahweh. None of them are like the Most High. So if you were to have a conversation with an ancient Hebrew person and say, so you believe there is no God but one, they'd say, yes, absolutely, there is no God but one. And then you would follow that up and say, so you believe there are no other gods. i say, no, I didn't say that. I'm like, wait, I thought you said there's no, there's no God but one. Yeah, I did. But, you, but so there's no other one? No, there, there's lots of other spiritual beings. And you're like, what? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit our categories. But they had a worldview that said, man, there, there's there's." There's other stuff out there. There's things that you can't see that you don't understand. There's stuff that's beyond your ability to comprehend. There's a reality underneath of the reality that you see. There are powers. There are principalities. There are things that if you could get your mind around it, your brain would turn to jello. They wouldn't say that because jello wasn't around yet. But you get the idea. They'd be like, look, there, there's other stuff. There are powers, principalities, spiritual beings. And some of them, by the way, are evil. Some of them are malevolent. 
Some of them are actually in rebellion against the Most High. That, that just, as, just as there is a, 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 an earthly rebellion among humanity where people are sinning against God, there's a heavenly spiritual rebellion as well. And when that heavenly rebellion and the earthly human rebellion come together, hell and destruction and evil are unleashed on the earth. That's where we're going next week. But they would say, yeah, there, there's other spiritual beings, but there are none, there are none who are like Yahweh. None even come close. That's the picture that, that Scripture represents. And so maybe you're asking, well, that's cool, that's interesting. Now I'm not going to sleep tonight because I'm like, was that a spiritual being? I don't know. <laughs> like, I, I'm sorry if I did that to you. And you're like, but what, what do I do with this practically? What does this mean? I, I'm not going to leave this hanging there. So here's what it means for our lives. If you're a follower of Jesus, this absolutely is applicable. That the New Testament authors that, that bring us the story of Jesus, that, that bring us the story of the early church and, and what it looks like to follow Jesus, um, they're, they're tapping into this idea. Like, like, they are well aware of this backstory. I want to look at one thing that the Apostle Paul said. So he's writing to a church in Corinth, which was this Roman city. It was like a, a major hub of, of commerce, of economy, of culture. Um, and it was, a, it was a pagan city. So these are people that are worshiping the, the Greek-Roman pantheon of gods. They're going to the temple. They're visiting the temple prostitutes. They're making their sacrifices. They're bringing, like, their offerings. They're worshiping and bowing down to these idols and all these different things. And some of them come out of that, and they're like, yeah, we're going to be followers of Jesus now. And so Paul's like, okay, well, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus now, you can't keep doing that stuff. And so he writes a letter to, like, instruct them on how to live. And in the midst of the letter, he says something that we think, well, this doesn't really apply to us because, you know, we don't really, you know, do idol worship anymore. But it absolutely applies to us. He talks about eating food sacrificed to idols, 1 Corinthians 8. He says, so then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. He says an idol is nothing. It's nothing at all, literally nothing. It is no thing in the world. And, and this is a culture where idols are everywhere. I mean, you, you, you go to the marketplace, you go to the town square, there's idols. You go to a government building, there's an idol. You go into your home, there's an idol. You go into a temple, there's an idol. And, and not idol like we talk about it, we're like, Man, I just made an idol out of success. No, like, like actual idols, like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, idol, okay? There's little statues everywhere, and people do all kinds of things to these idols. They bow down to the idols, they worship the idols, they pray to the idols, they sacrifice, they, they kiss the idols. I mean, they're just like all about these idols. They think that they are gods. But Paul says, listen, they're, they're nothing. They're, they're, they're literally, they're, they're just wood, they're metal, they're stone, they're, they're chunks of physical stuff. They're not Elohim. That idol is not a spiritual being. And so he gets at this point and says, like, just go ahead, eat the food. Like, it's fine. If you eat food sacrificed to an idol, not that big of a deal, because an idol, it's just a, it's, it's, again, it's a piece of stone, it's a piece of wood. But then he says something to his original audience, and I think us as well, so we don't think, oh, Paul, so an idol is just a, it's just a thing, so there are no other spiritual beings or spiritual realities. And he says, no, 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 I, di I didn't say that. Because verse 5, he says, for even if there are so-called gods, a so-called here is not like, it's not a pejorative, it's not a diss, like that's how we use the phrase so-called, like, oh, you're a so-called expert, aren't you, right? Like, they didn't have, I don't think they use sarcasm, um, but, but it, it literally, it's the, it's the passive tense of the verb speak. So, so literally, it says, so even if there are gods that are spoken of, even if there are gods that are named or na gods that are called, there are other spiritual beings. And then he says, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are. There are many gods and many lords. 
Paul uses the word Lord often throughout his letters to refer to other spiritual beings that have power or authority or dominion. He says lords, rulers, authorities, powers. He's talking about things in the spiritual realm. He says, hey, he's like, don't get it twisted. I'm not saying that there's not other spiritual realities out there. There are other gods and other lords. But then verse 6, he says, yet for us. He writes to these followers of Jesus in this church in Corinth. He says, for us, there's, there's but one. See, for us, there is but one God, the Father, through whom all things came. There is one God through whom, there's only one creator God. There is only one eternal, exists outside of time, space, matter, the uncaused cause. There's only one thing behind the cosmos. There is only one God, the Father, through whom all things came. The implication also being that those other spiritual beings, they're part of God's creation. He is above them through whom all things came, and for whom we live. And then he says, there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ. And he uses the same phrase, and through whom all things came. Paul, I thought you just said there's only one God through whom all things came. I did. But now you're saying that all things also came through Jesus, so which one is it? It's both. What Paul wants us to understand is that that one God, the most high God, through whom all things came, revealed himself in the person of Jesus, and it's through whom that we live. Paul's like, yeah, yeah, there there are other gods, there are other lords, there are other spiritual beings, there are things that we can't even get our minds around, but make no mistake, there is only one most high, and that God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus. He kind of continues talking about the food sacrifice, the idols, and, and the big point he lands on is, you know, you're free to eat whatever, But as a follower of Jesus, your freedom is never used for your own benefit. Like we have freedom in Christ to use it for other people. And so he says, if your freedom of eating this food is going to get, is going to cause someone else to stumble, cut it out. Like don't do that. And then he kind of goes off on a tangent and talks about some other things. And in verse 10, or chapter 10, he finally comes back around the food sacrifice to idol thing and wraps the thought up. He says, do I mean then that food sacrifice to idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. He's like, I've already said that. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons not to God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. I don't want you to be a participant. So so Paul's concern for these these Corinthians, these these first century followers of Jesus that have just left their pagan religion, his concern is that they're going to kind of like unknowingly end up being participants. They're going to go down to the temple and be a part of the sacrifice and unknowingly come under the influence of corrupt spiritual powers. He's like, no, 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 you, you can eat the meat, but don't go and participate. Like, don't, don't go and be a part of what's going on there. He uses this word uh, that's translated as demons. It refers to evil spiritual beings. It, 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 ta- it refers to, like, lower-level spiritual um, entities, spiritual beings that have power, that have authority. So Paul's like, I want to be really, really clear. He, he's saying, like, to say that a, an idol is not a god, it's just a chunk of wood, it's just a chunk of stone, it's just a chunk of metal, it's not the same thing as saying there are no other spiritual beings or spiritual realities. Paul says, no, 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 they, they exist, they're real, so be careful, so be careful. See, pa- Paul's point of all this is, hey, food is food, eat whatever, if it's sold in the market, doesn't matter, it's fine, unless it's going to cause a brother or sister to stumble, then don't eat it, but do not participate in the ritual. Like, don't, don't get mixed up in that. He, he's, he, he's talking to people who just came out of that life. He's like, look, look, you're following Jesus now. And if you're following Jesus, you can't keep doing the same things you were doing because that will take you down a path towards destruction. 
like, listen, like, 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 you, I know you used to be a pagan. I know you used to go to the temple. I know you used to do that ritual, but you, you can't do that anymore. So the next time your neighbor's like, hey, buddy, you want to go down to the temple? We'll have a good time. Slaughter some animals. It'll be great. We invite the wife and kids. He's like, you got to say no. Like, you can't go there. Okay, you can't do that because while that idol that's sitting in the temple, it may not be a real thing, there could very well be a spiritual power behind it. And that's not something you want to get mixed up in. That's not something you want to mess with. That's some seriously dark juju magumbo right there, okay? Like you don't want to get wrapped up in that kind of stuff. There are other spiritual beings, but none of them are like the Most High. None of them are like Yahweh. He's been revealed in the person of Jesus. And so that's Paul's point. That's his claim. That's his focus of his whole conversation on food sacrifice to idols. This is the key part right here. He says, for us, there is but one God. For us, for us, for us. For those of us that are followers of Jesus, for those of us that are Christians, he says, for you, there's a whole bunch of other things you could go after, but there is only one true God. There is the most high. He's been revealed in the person of Jesus, and it's only through, who, through him that you can live. The, the reason, the only, the, 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 he's the only one that offers life. None of those other spiritual beings or other, any of those other realities can offer you life because only one is the creator of all things. Only one is the author of life. He's the only one that offers you life to the fullest and an eternal existence. See, that, that's the claim of Christianity. The claim of Christianity is, it's not a denial of other spiritual beings or supernatural realities. The claim is, no, 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 that's real. There is a supernatural reality. There are things that we don't see, that we don't understand. There are other spiritual beings, and some of them are some unsavory characters, yet there is only one most high. He's the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the Elohim of Elohim. And that most high God who is outside of time and space, that, that most high God who is eternal, stepped into time and space, stepped onto the planet in the person of Jesus. He became a man. And the Most High God lived as a human. He died on a cross, and he rose from the dead. And why did he do that? Why did he do that, Paul says, so, so that we can live? Because it's only through him that we can. He, he, he stepped into this existence. He, he was killed. He rose so that we, through him, we may live. That means that through him, my sin can be forgiven. This thing that, that gets all, get, just destroys me, it destroys the people around me, and it puts a barrier up between me and God. This is through him you can have that removed. You can have that gone. And you can be in relationship with God. You know, it's something that we talk about often, like, man, I'm in a relationship with Jesus. I'm in a relationship with Jesus. And it's true, but sometimes we kind of take that nonchalantly, like, yeah, you know, Jesus is my friend. Jesus is my buddy. Jesus is my bro. And which is true. He says he's closer than a brother, and he is a friend, and he is all of those things. But listen, it's more than that, because we're talking about the most high God who became a man. The, 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 the one that wants to have a relationship with you is over all these things that we can't see or understand, all the, over all these realities and supernatural beings, and over all the, there's, there is one most high, and that most high wants to have a relationship with you and me. That like me and you who are just these weird dirt creatures, we get like 70 or 80 years, we're really insignificant. I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but people aren't going to remember us like a hundred years from now. Like no one's going to know, no one's going to care. We are jacked up, we are messed up, we are broken. We pretty much find a way to screw up everything we do. And God, the most high is like, yeah, but you're worth it. And I, I want to know you, I want to have a relationship with you. 
so that, so that we may live, we can have relationship with him, and also that he may de- he de- he's defeated. When he became a man, when he died, when he rose, he defeated the spiritual powers that hold us in bondage so that we can be transformed. This is the crux of the issue. Yes, there's other supernatural realities, and yes, it's fun to talk about, but the crux of the issue is that first phrase, for us, for us, for me, for you. Do we make the statement, do we make the claim that there is only one that I am going to live for? Because faith in the Old and and, and New Testament is about believing loyalty. It's not just have have I ascribed to like some sort of, some beliefs, have I made the intellectual assent to say, I believe this, these set of statements, I believe these facts about God, that's not what faith is. Faith is uh, understanding of all the things that I could choose to orient my life around, of all the things I could choose to, to trust in, of all the things I could choose to define me, to find my worth, to find my identity, of all of the things I could choose to give my worship to, whether that's things on earth or things in the spiritual realm, of all of the things that I could choose, I am choosing the most high, I'm choosing Jesus. That's what faith is. It's not just believe. I mean, I, I know this might burst some of your bubbles, it may make you a little upset, but it's not enough to just believe. Because just believe isn't what it's about. So just to say, oh, I believe in God. Like, which God? I believe in God. Like, what does believe even mean? Like, define that for me. I mean, James writes a letter in the New Testament, and he says, look, okay, you believe. Whoopie freaking do. It's my translation. He doesn't actually say that. But basically, that's what he says. He's like, hey, you believe. Good job. Like, I mean, he says, even the demons believe. Even the demons believe. He believes there's a supernatural reality. He says, even the demons believe, but you know what they do? They, they shudder. Because they're not loyal. They're not committed to the most high God. It's not about simply believing. Because believe in God isn't enough. Believe in God doesn't save you. Believe in God doesn't change your life. Believe in God doesn't fill you up. Man, we're looking to be filled up with something. Sometimes we feel so stinking empty, and we see that, that God promises, He's like, I'm going to give you love. I'm going to fill you up with love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and gentleness and self-control. And we're like, I want to be filled up with those things. But just believing in God doesn't fill me up with those things. It doesn't give you hope. You know how many people I know who say, I believe in God, and they are absolutely miserable. I believe in God, and their marriage is a disaster. I believe in God, and their kids are a wreck. I believe in God, and their finances are completely upside down. They don't know how to handle money. And I believe in God, and they're addicted. And I believe in God, and I can't stand my work life. You know how many people I know are like, I don't understand what's going on. I believe in God. Why is it like this? It's not just about believing in God. There's no power in simply believing a set of ideas. There's power in a commitment to Jesus. A a commitment where everything, everything, everything in my life is moving in the direction of Jesus. Everything. The way I view work, the way I view family, the way I view money, the way I view sex, the whole way that I view, like, reality. Like, what is real? What is not real? It's all moving in the direction of Jesus. And it's when I do that that I enter into the life that he promises. Whenever there's like a commitment to say, more than just ideas in my head, I believe, I have faith, I'm trusting, I'm moving in the direction of Jesus, my life gets tethered to his life. Like, like they, they, they come together where the two are like inseparable, that I'm now attached, I'm connected to Jesus, and his spirit comes and lives within me and transforms me and changes my life, and it, it empowers me, it draws me closer to him, and in that, in that there's hope, in that there's healing, in that there's power. 
in that, we're, we're welcomed into his kingdom with the recognition that, that this world isn't all there is, both in the present but also in the future, that whatever I am going through right now, whatever life throws at me, what, whatever, like, whatever this week holds, no matter how bad it is, when my life is tethered to Jesus, it's done so with the reality of this isn't all there is. There's another life to come. Paul's like, listen, listen, it's through him, but yet for us, yet for us, yet for us, it's not just about belief, it's about believing loyalty. It's not about an intellectual assent to a set of ideas, but saying, okay, I'm moving my life in the direction of Jesus, because there are a lot of different things I could put my faith in. I could even choose to put my faith and try to chase after some of these other supernatural beings, but there's only one most high. And that most high became a man. He lived, he died, he rose, so that my life could be attached to his. So that I could be transformed. And so the invitation is to have the statement like Paul said, but for us. For us. There's one Lord. There's one God. And when I attach myself to that, I have the promise that I will live. Man, I don't know where you're at on that journey. You know, it, start, it does start with, hey, I believe this. I think this is true. But then it moves to that sense of, okay, I'm living it out. And so I want to encourage you that no matter where you are at on that journey today, take a step towards Jesus. Maybe it's a first step. Maybe it's a matter of, of being like, hey, I, I want to know more. I want to come back. Maybe it's a step of recommitting your life. Maybe it's a step of, I, I need to figure out how to grow closer to him, but move towards pray together. God, thank you so much um, just for who you are, for what you've done. God, we thank you um, that, that there is more to this world than we can see, that there's more than what meets the eye. God, we thank you that uh, through you we live, and no matter what we face, no matter what today looks like, no matter what tomorrow looks like, or the next 50 years of our life look like, we know that there is more. We know that our life is attached to yours when our faith is in you, and our life will be attached to yours both now into eternity. So God, I pray for those of us who are here in this room. I pray for those of us that are watching online that we would do whatever we need to with what we've heard today. Through the power of your spirit, would you transform us? Would you encourage us? Would you give us boldness? Would you, would you move us in the right direction to know how do we take another step towards believing loyalty to you? God, give us the confidence to know as we leave this place if our faith is in you, we are sons, we are daughters of the Most High God. We pray this in Jesus' name.